This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. International Workers' Day, also known as May Day, is celebrated across the world on May 1st. The day is a celebration of workers and the labor movement. The date was chosen in 1889 by the Marxist International Socialist Congress in support of a working-class demand for an eight-hour workday. While Canada and the United States celebrate Labor Day on the first Monday in September, for many countries around the world, May Day remains a public and national holiday. In a year when work and workers have seen massive upheaval, it's worth contemplating the significance of the date. And it's worth asking tough questions about how workers with disabilities have fared in the year of the pandemic. Today, we discuss disability and work. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and Welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juwita Gupta. It's really good to be with you today on this 1st of May, and it's shaping up to be a beautiful morning here in Toronto. I'm glad you could take some time out of your day to speak to us. My guest today is Professor Colin Barnes, who is a lifelong disability activist, author, advocate and researcher. He is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Leeds. He is the founder of an electronic archive of writings on disability issues. He joins us today from his home in Leeds, England. Hello and welcome to the program. Welcome, I'm glad to be here. You know, we've talked, I think, for many years now, possibly decades, about the lack of employment opportunities for people with disabilities, and yet it sometimes feels like we don't seem to be making any progress on the issue. Why is that? Well, essentially, our society, Western society at least, is structured around ideologies of individuality, competition, and the profit market. And to be crude, uh, to be simple, straightforward, anybody who can't compete in a market where the profit margin is is priority, people who cannot um, compete on an equal level with non-disabled people, whatever they are, are going to be at a disadvantage. So essentially, um, that's the situation that we are. I mean, if if you go throughout history, people with impairments or what you call disabilities... um, could have been integrated into society prior to the, in, the industrialization and capitalism and particularly wage labor. So mm-hmm. disabled people within that context will always be at a disadvantage in the labor market. But let me just push back a little bit. A lot of the conversations that we hear about employment and disability center around changing attitudes if employers were only convinced that people with disabilities could work just as hard, were just as loyal, if not more so, then we would get around the problem of unemployment for people with disabilities. How do you feel about that? Uh, Attitudes are important, yes, but you can't change society. You can't change employment opportunities for disabled people without changing society as a whole. 
You need an accessible environment. You need accessible transport. You need a different attitude towards people who uh, possibly work slower because of their, in inverted commas, impairment. So it's not just about attitudes. If you look at the arguments about disability, which came out of the UK in the 1960s and 70s, and which I've, I've written about, before mm. you can address simply employment, you have to change the very nature of society in terms of constructing an, an acceptable envi accessible environment and an environment which accepts the fact that disability, if you like, is not something that's peculiar to one section of the community. It's a common experience for most people at some point in their lives. The most common causes mm. of impairment are Poverty, accident, war, acquisition of a, a life-changing illness or health condition, and ageing. So we're not talking here about a minority problem. We're talking about a societal problem. And it's the fact of society that we don't face the reality of people's existence. Disability or problems associated with impairment and people with impairments are generally viewed as a minority medical health issue and it's not simply a, mm -hmm. it, that's a simplification and it's a it's a problem which has to be addressed on a universal level it's true that some of some efforts have been made to address employment for people with disabilities i'm thinking about the sheltered workshop model for instance where uh, they would often pay people with disabilities a pittance to work long hours at these sheltered workshops there's quite a long history about that, but there's also some debate about whether these workshops were a form of empowerment for people with disabilities or if it was just exploitation uh, under the guise of altruism. How do you feel about them? Well, actually, my father worked in a sheltered workshop for visually impaired people in Leeds, okay, which was mm. set up in, in the 19th century uh, where it was about making people with impairments productive productive, if you like, and they survived, those organizations survived in the UK well into the 1960s, but they, they were particularly um, founded, supported immediately after the Second World War and after the First World War, because lots of soldiers came back who were damaged, and society felt a moral, problem, moral um, responsibility for that. But quickly that disappeared. If you take my father's experience, for example, he was trained as a skilled basket maker. He was blind. And he used to make mm -hmm. baskets when I was a young man, or a child, basically. Uh, chairs, tables, uh, baskets for the um, post office, and all those kind of things. But in the 1950s, mm -hmm. International of Trade and Labour that became too expensive because they could buy cheaper ones from overseas. So my father was retrained uh, to do coconut matting, basically. He did coconut matting for about five years, and the same thing happened. Those kind of um, institutions were more expensive than buying things from outside. So consequently, he was retrained again uh, to dip wire fencing into plastic um, solutions so that they became uh, immune to rust and so on and so forth. And then in the 1960s, that was moved elsewhere because it was cheaper to do it elsewhere. 
And he ended up putting mm. nuts and bolts in cardboard boxes. And then even that was closed. So basically the history of, of segregated employment is no longer acceptable for lots of uh, disabled people because it doesn't it never paid full wages for the start. There were always substandard wages. And um it was a form of institutionalization, basically. Uh, disabled people, I mean, my father actually came from Canada, basically. When he came to Leeds in the 1940s, he tried to get work in engineering and tailoring in Leeds, and he couldn't get work because he was visually impaired. And all they said to him was, well, you'll have to work at the blind welfare on Roundy Road, basically. So they became dumping grounds for people who couldn't work in mainstream employment. Do you feel as we see such monumental shifts in how we work, as so many of us have made the transition to working from home just very recently owing to the pandemic, do you think that what we need rather than trying to accommodate people's impairments or disabilities is a more fulsome conversation about the definition of productive work? Well, again, yes, I think that we have to decide what is work and what is not work. I mean, one, I've argued in the, in the past very, very clearly that people with severe impairments who use personal assistance, I mean, you've got personal assistance in Canada because I know about that, are employers. They're not essentially just dependent because they have to tell their em- employees or their carers, if you like, what to do. Now, I've got friends who have em- employed three or four dis- non-disabled people every week as personal assistants, but society sees them as dependent. Now, a friend of mine, I don't know whether you've heard of him, but Adolf Ratzka in Sweden once did a survey, because we talked about this issue a long time ago, of, of the number of disabled people and the carers, there are personal assistants, if you like, um, in Stockholm. And it was something like, uh, they employed something like 40% of the, in, of the work disabled people were employing a similar amount of non-disabled people as support workers, if you like. But of course, they weren't seen as workers or employers they were seen as dependent. Mm. And if you think about it, that is not something that's uncommon because as soon as people get money, what do they do? They employ people to do things for them. Now, there's no difference mm-hmm. in lots of ways, if you think about it, that somebody with plenty of money can buy people to do all kinds of things. Whereas if a disabled per- person needs people to help them to do certain things, they're dependent. I mean, can you imagine our royal family going around to a bank and buying money <laughs> and using actual money? No, because they don't do that sort of thing. Prince Charles doesn't even choose his clothes, for example. So we need to sort of reevaluate what is and what is not work and what is employment. I'm Joita Gupta, and with me today is Colin Barnes, Professor Emeritus from the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Leeds. Colin Barnes, one of the things that I was thinking about is the experience of your father and the many occasions on which he had to retrain because the, the, it was just cheaper to buy products from other parts of the world 
Um, and it made me really think about how we live in a globalized economy now. Do you feel that in thinking about the question of employment and work, labor force participation for people with disabilities, we need to have a global conversation or an international conversation? Uh, I think any sort of international organization which, which focuses on these issues is, is valuable because we're, it's a global society. There's, there's no two, two ways about that at all. I mean, you know, most Western countries seem to be going inwards and being national. You know, mm. I mean, make America great is one example. We've got us leaving the European Union. But if you think about the world's population, there is no shortage of young labor, if you know what I mean. So we really do need to think about what is work and how we organize society, if you like. Because in, in many ways, the future of work is going to change drastically anyway because of technology. I mean, it wouldn't, mm -hmm. when I was younger, and this is a long time ago, as you probably realize I'm retired now, but when I left school, everybody of my age who hadn't got an academic background, and I certainly didn't have an academic background, went straight into employment in engineering, uh, coal mining, all kinds of it. Those jobs have gone. And even, even middle-class jobs are going or in, will go simply because it's cheaper to get computers to do the kind of things that bureaucrats and administrators and accountants do as well. So we, it's in everybody's interest, not just disabled people's interest, to understand that the whole nature of work needs to be re-evaluated. What is work? What is not? Why is work important? I mean, all governments accept that work is necessary simply to keep people, um, in inverted commas, socially uh, stable, if you like, you know, mm -hmm. to feed themselves and so on and so forth. Now, the point is that some, I think it's Finland, have thought about having a universal benefit in one way or another because in acceptance of the fact that not everybody will be able to work. I mean, as a Japanese in I went to Japanese, Japan a few years ago to talk about disability, and there was they have got a national organisation, and the Japanese organ, disabled people's organisation, actually uh, campaigned not to work because it was demeaning and it was not possible. They always end up with lousy jobs. And of course, if you think about what I said about disabled people needing people to support and do the things that they can't do for themselves, then that is work. Employing people or organizing people to run your, to do your daily routine, admin, cleaning and so on and so forth, that is work, if you see what I mean. It's a really good point and one that one we don't really think about. In that vein, the other sort of, if I can call it a disincentive to work for a lot of people with disabilities, at least here in Canada, is our social welfare system. If you are on some kind of social assistance, the moment you start working, uh, they start to claw back your social assistance payment. What sort of a relationship exists between the welfare state and um, the need for people with disabilities to find meaningful and gainful employment? Uh, well, people, disabled people, one of the key issues that, that 
people benefit from work is not simply finance or money. It's social involvement, isn't it? Basically, people work because they meet friends, they meet, you know, they socialise and so on and so forth. So again, it comes back to what we mean by work, if you know what I mean. Mm. In the UK, for example, the, the, like Canada, I imagine, I don't know, I, it's a long time since I studied Canada's employment systems, but once disabled people get into work, they tend to lose benefits, if you like. Now, mm. that is not particularly useful in many respects, expect, because people, usually the jobs that most disabled people end up getting are not well paid particularly, if you see what I mean. So the, and the unfortunate thing is, as the world has moved forward in terms of um, its attitudes towards social welfare and so on, the, 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 the welfare state in most countries that had welfare states is being reduced. Certainly it's being reduced in the UK. And disabled people who don't work are under constant pressure to find work, even though there's no work there, if you see what I mean, which again seems to be a complete anomaly. It's a, it's a, it's a good point. Um, the other piece around this, and I've been so curious to ask you about the role of the trade union. Uh, we are talking, of course, on the occasion of May Day, and it's a celebration of the labor movement. How active or involved have trade unions been with people with disabilities, uh, with the struggle for employment equity for people with disabilities? Well, again, that's interesting because my father was, uh, as I say, he came from Canada. And when he was in Canada, he worked for his father, basically. I mean, he wasn't Canadian. He went to Canada when he was six months old. But because he had a visual impairment, um, he came to England following in his mother who fell out with his father and so on and so forth. But the point was, he couldn't get back to Canada, basically. But the, the issue that's point, again, here, because my father didn't, grow up in, a, in an, a, an incossative environment. He went to a French-speaking school, uh, lived in Montreal and so on and so forth. When he came to England, he was a worker. And he got the people in his, his sheltered workshop to join the local authority um, trade union for unskilled, semi-skilled workers. And my father was actually kicked out of the union because he was earning more than non-disabled peers who were working, doing the same kind of job. Trade unions are all very well if they are universally, if they, if they work together. But what happens now, and certainly since, since the 1970s, and it, if it was probably the 60s too, trade unions tend to look after, in inverted commas, their members, if you like. And that is not really conducive to what the trade union movement started out in the first place. The trade unions, as far as I know from, from my limited knowledge of history, is originally they were about politics and changing the social circumstances generally for working class people. But with the advent of particular developments within capitalist society, if you like, or Western society, unions were were generally responding to their particular membership. And they even mm -hmm. compete against each other. One union will compete against each other. There's no universal approach to what unions are about, apart from 
looking after their individual members. I mean, again, my first employment was in um, catering, basically, and I worked in a large catering institution in Leeds. And I, like my father, I got the catering staff to join, to join Sogat, which was a, it was a printing firm which I was working in. And because we were allied trades, because, you know, the workers all depended on, on meals that we were all preparing, we joined that union. But that union wouldn't support the struggle for better wages for catering staff, although it was supposed to be an inverted printing and allied trades union because we weren't printers, we were allied trades. So, you know, again, unions have changed. They're not necessarily concerned about disabled people. They're concerned about the members, if you see what, whether their members are disabled or not. There's never been a particularly strong disabled people's union. Um, early in the 1990s, we tried to get... Um, when I was involved with the British Council of Disabled People, we tried to get a, a, what we called a Tudor, which was a trade union for disabled workers. And it was supposed to be universal against for all workers in any situation, if you like. But again, people would prefer to join their own union if they were in work rather than a disabled people's union. It's an interesting point. Colin Barnes, we'll have to leave we'll have to leave it there today because we've had uh, quite a lot to talk about and a lot to think about. Thanks very much for taking a few minutes out of your day to speak to us on the program. No problem at all. Bye-bye. Colin Barnes is Professor Emeritus at the School of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Leeds. He joined us today from his home in Leeds, England. If you missed any of my conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Also, do head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Colin Barnes for being my guest on the program today. Technical producer for the pulse is Sam Robinson, who is in for Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.